You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On today's show... Death on the streets of Harare as the army is deployed in the capital of Zimbabwe. Violence flared after the ruling party announces a parliamentary majority, but the presidential results are still being withheld. My guests Jeffrey Howard and Victor Bulmer-Thomas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including what if you could print your own plastic gun? With no serial number, no background checks and no trace on a metal detector, is a ruling to prohibit the publication of blueprints for this type of weapon already too late. All that, plus the controversial right-wing politician in Brazil who's been compared to Donald Trump, and a good news air crash story from Mexico. That's all to come right here on Midori House with me, Georgina Godwin. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Geoffrey Howard, a lecturer in political theory at University College London, and Victor Bulmer-Thomas, who's an associate fellow in the Americas programme at Chatham House. Thank you both for, for coming on the show. We'll start in Zimbabwe, where the army has been deployed on the streets, and at least one person is confirmed dead. But as things stand, that number looks to be increasing. Large crowds have gathered to protest against the results of the harmonised election. The country went to the polls on Monday to elect both a parliament and a president. Well, according to the results announced by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZANU-PF, the party of the incumbent president, Emerson Munangagwa, which has been in power since 1980, has won a parliamentary majority. Many Zimbabweans, including the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, the MDC, dispute this result, alleging state-sponsored electoral fraud. Well, gentlemen, thank you for, for coming on. I don't know if you've seen the truly horrific photographs uh, circulating on social media and the usual caveats about fake news notwithstanding. There are pictures of at least five people who've been killed. One of them, a woman who's clearly been shot in the back. I wonder if this is finally the definitive answer to the question of whether Emerson Munangagwa really represents a new dawn. I mean, surely this makes it clear that the regime, even without Mugabe, continues, Victor. Well, you have to put it in a little bit of context, it was always a stretch to imagine that a contested election of this nature after what has happened in the last uh, 40 years was going to be peaceful. Uh, it would have been a huge surprise, frankly, if it had gone off without any violence or, sadly, uh, deaths and injuries. That it has done so is, of course, very tragic, but it's hardly a surprise the question is, what happens now? Uh, what will be the judgment of the electoral observers? Uh, and whether they can uh, put these uh, wounds behind them relatively quickly. If you think of other cases like Nicaragua and uh, Venezuela this year, uh, the levels of violence have been much, much higher than what we have yet seen in Zimbabwe. Uh, and yet uh, people still talk about uh, democratic solutions, democratic processes, and mm. so on. So this is not the end of the road for Zimbabwe, even though clearly it's uh, something of a, 
of a challenge. Uh, Geoffrey, of course, yes, violence possibly to be expected, but to deploy the army who are shooting civilians with live ammunition in the back, surely that's not the actions of somebody who wants to be seen as a reformed man. Manangagwa has tweeted out his condemnation of this, but the fact that the police are responding so repressively um, to the protesters in the street, who are pretty much all Kamisa supporters, really tells us whose side that they're on. And, and one has to wonder whether besi- behind the scenes whether Manangagwa really is giving the orders to crack down with this level of repression. I find it quite striking because clearly morally we should be outraged by what's going on here. But somewhat to Victor's point, it's not that we should be terribly surprised. So Monday was, of course, always going to be something of a disappointment, right? So the first major vote since Mugabe's ousted after four decades of rule. Mugabe was so effective at dismantling Zimbabwean civil society, Zimbabwean institutions, that it was just bound to be the case that this wouldn't go swimmingly. Um, so I think that the challenge is being able to withhold, withstand those two thoughts in our head at the same time, the fact that morally we're outraged, but empirically we're not that, disapp- we're not that surprised. Mm. I mean, Victor, you mentioned uh, the international election monitors who were, who were on the ground there. Uh, it's always puzzled me why it has seems to be okay that it can be just good enough. As long as there wasn't blood on the streets, this is an election that could be signed off on. I wonder why they have, it would seem, with a few reservations, really just said it's fine, the poll's fine, when there are clear examples, uh, according to to a, a lot of media reports of rigging? Well, they won't have written their final reports yet, uh, but it's true that the uh, European Union, other international organisations are desperate for these elections to be a success. So they are bending over backwards to try and uh, see this as a process in the reconciliation and healing of Zimbabwe and its uh, incorporation, if you like, back into the... Uh, into the normal uh, world affairs. I'm trying to avoid using the word international community because I hate it so much, but I (laughs) I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, of course, you are a Latin American expert and you were mentioning previous elections there. Are there any recent parallels, you think, that that mirror this situation? Oh, many. Uh, And there are some in in Africa as well, I'm sure. Uh, So uh, this is not, as I said at the very beginning, this is not something that really should surprise us. when you reach a situation where violence begins, of course, it can go in one of several ways. It can get much worse. Uh, it can uh, rumble on for a long time with low levels of violence, or you can get a process of uh, reconciliation coming about quite quickly, either through the formation of a coalition government or whatever it is. Frankly, I don't know which way this particular issue is going to go, mm-hmm. but I am not at all surprised, given the uh, utter... Um, lack of independent institutions in Zimbabwe that we are seeing an effort by uh, ZANU-PF with the support of the army to try and uh, maintain a grip on power. Mm. That does not surprise me at all. Uh, Geoffrey, the the rigging alleged here is not so much about intimidation or or violence, though of course that that has taken place. Uh, The complaint is about how the system is and has been for nearly 40 years tilted in favour of the ruling party. Now, you've made a study of structural injustice. Is this what's going on? I think that there's a lot to be said to that, and I think that we should think about the legacy of Mugabe's oppression as including the way in which he foreclosed the possibility of a swift transfer to democracy. In other words, part of what was so um, alarming and unjust about Mugabe's rule is that he was the architect of a a political structure that was resistant 
to transitioning to this kind of arrangement. And so the, the point here isn't that people in Zimbabwe aren't ready for democracy, aren't sufficiently developed for democracy. We certainly shouldn't think that. It's that the, the resilience of democratic institutions depends on decades or even centuries of being put to the test, of being grafted through the hard experience of politics. And these democratic institutions just haven't had that kind of experience. So again, it, it shouldn't terribly surprise us that this is happening. And of course, there isn't the cash to fix it right now. I mean, Victor, whoever whoever comes out on top of uh, as president, the focus will be on trying to fix the economy. Hyperinflation has been out of control. There's now no Zimbabwean currency. US dollars are very hard to come by. Zimbabwe is basically a, a cashless economy. Again, big parallels here to Latin America. Well, this is where the international uh, observers are so important because their imprimatur is absolutely crucial if uh, Zimbabwe is to enjoy uh, an injection of uh, foreign aid, uh, foreign investment uh, and all the rest of the things that would bring uh, much greater economic stability. Jeffrey, mm. uh, we've been talking about the, the violence. Of course, economic stability is, is, is key to the future, but I wonder about future violence too. Uh, we've seen gunfire, tear gas, uh, very, very disturbing footage. I know that, that you're currently looking at incitement and hate speech in your work. Is there a way that Zimbabwe can negotiate this process without any more bloodshed? I mean, it's a it's a familiar mantra that the best way to respond to speech that's that's dangerous or hateful is to is to argue back against it with better speech. And so I think it's going to be a responsibility of everyone in Zimbabwe to come together and try to reduce the violence that's happening. And I think that this is a duty that bears not just the political leaders of Zimbabwe, but the ordinary citizens and the people who are in that police force. So there was a, a quite alarming tweet a couple hours ago by Joseph Cotterell, the South Africa correspondent for the Financial Times, and he, he tweeted that he saw a soldier in blue and red scream, uh, I'll show you free and fair, as his squad beat women and bystanders. And it's going to be up to the people in the army and in the police standing alongside that soldier to say, hey, knock it off. That's not what we're about here. And that's going to take a lot of bravery and a lot of courage. But only with that kind of resistance at all levels are we going to see a reduction in violence, mm. I think. I'm obviously fascinated by this story because I'm Zimbabwean. But I wonder why what happens in really this very small southern African country with not much global importance, why it grabs the headlines worldwide all of the time. And it does again and again. Victor, do you have a theory on that? I'm not sure it does. I think uh, in Britain it does for obvious reasons, uh, the colonial links, uh, the white supremacy and all the rest of it. Uh, and perhaps you get an echo of that in the United States as well. But it isn't grabbing the attention of people in Latin America or Asia. And what would you say to that, Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I think that people certainly in the democratic world have um, great aspirations for Zimbabwe. And we see in the idea that democracy can be a universal form of government for all peoples, we invest a, a great amount of, of, pro of, of hope in burgeoning democratic societies. And so Monday's election was something that, that people were getting very, very excited about. And so I think that it 
the concern with what's going to happen in, in Zimbabwe reflects a deeper concern with the prospect of democracy in an era where we really see it being challenged around the world. Mm. Let's move on to your home country now. Uh, in the US, a federal judge has blocked the public availability of blueprints that provide instructions for making guns using 3D printers. Now, although this ruling came before the documents were published online, it seems that there are already detailed manuals available on the internet on how to use technology to manufacture plastic weapons. Jeffrey, this is actually a reversal of a previous ruling. This row goes back several years, doesn't it? It absolutely does. So it all started in 2013 when the founder of this organization called Defense Distributed um, put these these 3D printed pistol and semiotic weapon designs online. Um, the federal government alleged that he had broken the law. Um, it went to court. But the Trump administration um, reversed the government's position and decided not to um, continue um, uh, engaging Cody Wilson, who is the founder of this defense distributed in court, basically allowing this stuff to be to be posted online. And it was indeed posted online on Friday. And by the end of Friday, about a thousand people had already downloaded these 3D plans that basically allow you to, to make your own AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, make your own pistol. Um, but now that the judge has intervened in this way, that's been blocked. And the complaint that's being advanced by the people who are harmed by this injunction is that it violates freedom of speech. And the claim is that freedom of speech allows you to put instructions for how to make guns on the internet, even if people might then go use those instructions to make illegal weapons. Uh, Victor, what's Trump said about it and how will it affect his relationship with the National Rifle Association? Well, he's had a conversation with the National Rifle Association and he says uh, he's this is not the way to go. I think that was uh, his phrase. Clearly, it, it puts him in a slightly tricky position because I can't imagine that President Trump is thrilled uh, by uh, this uh, this possibility of uh, the printing of uh, 3D guns. But at the same time, he can't afford, particularly the, with the elections coming up in two months, to make too much of an e- three months sorry to make too much of an enemy of um, of the NRA. Mm. So um, it's a very sort of this is a very. Uh, parochial U.S. Uh, issue, if I may put it that way, because to other countries, people in other countries, this looks completely bizarre. I mean, the idea that you could use the law to actually uh, go ahead and, uh, and and make a gun without any sorts of controls or anything like that just does not make sense to the rest of the world. Uh, and potentially, I mean, enormously seriously, if they can go through metal detectors, no permits required, no background checks, no serial numbers, th- this, I mean, this is... Uh, potentially absolutely disastrous. Uh, yes. I mean, I think the point about uh, no metal detectors is, is the crucial one because, look, it's not difficult to get a gun in the United States if you're so minded. Uh, uh, there are plenty of states where checks are minimal, to say the least, and there's a very active second-hand market as well. Uh, but they do involve guns with metal, and so at least when people try and get onto uh, aeroplanes, it's blocked. And this is something which... Uh, I would imagine that it will get closed down one way or the other. It's a, it's a classic case where in, in the US system there is one law pointing in one direction and another law pointing in another. And in the end, I would have thought that common sense will prevail. But but as you say, I mean, it's already out there, isn't it, Jeffrey? Absolutely. I mean, they put it down, but many people already have the online um, instructions. I, mean, I think it'll be fascinating to see whether there are potential splits within the NRA here. I mean, the gun manufacturing lobby isn't going to be so enthused about the prospect of people doing DIY gun making, <laughs> right? Rather than So we might get some schisms within the NRA about this. But I think stepping back and thinking about it generally, I, I think that it's a real mistake to think that the idea of, of free speech should be in 
invoked to justify um, putting designs about how to make your own gun on the internet. Right? Suppose I had a recipe for how to make nerve gas in your sink or some other chemical or biological weapon. I think it's lunacy to think that I should therefore be able to stand on my free speech rights and actively give people the, the knowledge through which to perpetrate um, terrorist attacks. And indeed, national security is being the rationale that's invoked here by the judge to, to justify why um, it must be uh, impossible for people to put these instructions online. Mm, and, and the weapons themselves, how effective are they? I mean, I saw one clip which said that, that they kind of tend to blow up in your hands. I don't know if either of you have, have handled one. <laughs> I haven't handled one. Of course, you still need bullets. Uh, and, uh, and the bullets, as I understand it, are still made in the traditional way. So uh, uh, in terms of, um, of uh, DIY all the way, uh, it's still some limitations. Mm. But there must be regulations. I mean, there, there are regulations now. It's, you can't put it on the internet. But there must be regulations to block the use of such guns. I understand those have, in fact, been in, in place for a long time. Oh, yeah. This is illegal, right? So basically what you're doing when you're putting the blueprints online is you're giving people instructions on how to commit a crime, right? And so at least in the jurisdictions in the U.S. where it's illegal, um, it is plausible, at least to my mind, that this can count as a certain this qualifies as a certain kind of incitement to criminal action, right? You're giving people the the means that they need to perpetrate a criminal offense. Um, and it's it's widely believed that that's a, at least a possible um, exception to the First Amendment. Activity, speech that constitutes incitement to criminal activity, um, at least in certain circumstances, can be legitimately, legitimately proscribed. And especially since there's no accompanying moral or political message, it's not like they're posting these instructions about how to make guns and an essential part of this um, material is the expression of some moral or political conviction. Clearly, it doesn't engage the kinds of interests that underwrite the right to free speech. And so I'm I'm persuaded that, that this is going to actually turn out the right way, um, perhaps partly because the NRA supporting gun manufacturers are actually going to be on the right side of this one, and we're going to be able to stop this stuff. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Georgina Godwin, Jeffrey Howard and Victor Bilmer-Thomas. Now, coming up next, we'll look at the strongman shaking up Brazil's political scene and we'll find out just how all 103 passengers aboard a Mexican plane survived when the flight went down. Summer is finally here and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city, a guide to breathing in and lightening up and a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. Let's 
focus on Brazil now, where Jair Bolsonaro, the politician and former military officer, is gaining traction in the political race there. He's a member of the small social liberal party and he's been a member of the Chamber of Deputies since 1991. He's a highly controversial figure known for his populist views and some compare his rise to that of his hero, Donald Trump. Well, still with me are Geoffrey Howard and Victor Bulmer-Thomas. Victor, why is he so controversial? Well, he's controversial because he is a strong supporter of uh, very tough action against um, uh, criminality. He uh, is a he when he uh, voted uh, for the impeachment of the previous president Dilma Rousseff. He dedicated his vote to the army general who had been responsible for torturing uh, many people in uh, during the period of military rule. And um, and so he appeals to a rather simplistic uh, view in Brazil that the solution to Brazil's problems is uh, uh, to be tough in terms of law and order and all the rest of it. Uh, Jeffrey, there have been some reports of some completely outrageous things he said. Yeah, I mean, so this is certainly one point of um, um, uh, affinity he has with uh, Donald Trump, which is that he's he's not just illiberal, he's anti-liberal, right? He seems disposed to say the the most um, outrageous things that are bound to get liberals upset. Um, so he's he's really, you know, taking political incorrectness for a ride here. So one of the, the statements he said is, look, if you really look at history, the Portuguese didn't even set foot in Africa. And then he talk, said that the blacks themselves turned turned over the slaves, right? Extremely incendiary, outrageous comments um, in a country where roughly half the country's 210 million inhabitants uh, consider themselves black. Um, he's made comments, um, jokes about rape, um, talking about why he wouldn't rape a woman because she was too ugly. He's made comments about why he wouldn't love his son if his son turned out to be gay. Just really incendiary stuff that that clearly his supporters, at least some of his supporters, relish him saying, not because they necessarily agree with it, but as again in the case of Trump, they love the reaction it gets Mm. out of his critics. Well, let's unpick that comparison to Trump a little bit, Victor. I mean, one big difference is that he doesn't have anything like the might of the GOP behind him. No, he doesn't. And in fact, uh, uh, this is, if you like, uh, his, uh, uh, maybe his peak moment, because once the election campaign starts on August the 16th, uh, you get uh, free airtime on television and radio. And because he's the representative of a very small political party, uh, he will get very, very little, whereas his uh, main rivals, and in particular, Gerardo Alcmin of the Social Democratic Party, will get uh, a, a huge amount more. So I think uh, Bolsonaro's star may start to wane a little bit uh, once we get into the election season proper. Remember, of course, that um, unlike in the U.S. system, uh, uh, there are almost certainly going to be two rounds of elections in Brazil. And while it's quite possible that Bolsonaro may be first or second on the first round and therefore go through to the second round, Every opinion poll, without exception, has said that he would lose in the second round to whoever candidate is against him. Mm. Social media seems to be uh, giving him quite a boost there, Jeffrey. Yeah, I mean, again, another striking parallel with with Trump. And you know, if we if we think back to to 
the way in which the Trump administration was, in some sense, a reaction to the Obama administration. Well, you know, here we are stepping out of various left-wing administrations that did step up university quotas for minorities, that did take aggressive economic action on behalf of the poor, including on behalf of um, of black people in Brazil. And and you very much sense that sense that Bolsonaro is a is a reaction to that, um, a movement that is that is standing up for people that perhaps are, are they're going to claim were allegedly ignored by, for example, Lula's administration in the same way that you have white rural working class people in America claiming that the Obama administration neglected them and instead played identity politics. I think you're seeing the same kind of reaction. Mm. Uh, and finally, just on this subject, what do we know about the other potential candidates? Well, they have to declare in the next few days, uh, that is to say their parties have to uh, present them as the candidate. Uh, And so there may be one or two small surprises, but we know the main candidates. Uh, Apart from Bolsonaro, you have Gerardo Alcmin, as I've mentioned. You have Marina Silva, who will be running a coalition uh, based around the Green Party and a a network called Ready that she formed uh, four years ago. She she might well be one of the uh, uh, top two in the the go through to the second round. Um, And you have Ciro Gomez, who is likely to be the candidate to the left, given that Lula is almost certainly uh, not going to be allowed to run. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's now move to a good news story to end the show today. Aeromexico flight AM2431 was flying from Guadalupe, Victoria International Airport to Durango to Mexico City. When it crashed, all 103 people on board survived the flight. 97 of them are injured, but nevertheless, it is being hailed as a miracle. Was it just lucky? Or is this an example of emergency procedures being properly followed? Do you have an opinion on that, Jeffrey? Um, I don't have an opinion on that particular issue. I mean, it seems that it was blind luck, right? So they're taking off a burst of wind. It makes a, a, one of the wings hit the ground and then it lands and they're able to get out of the plane miraculously. Um, I mean, what strikes me of, about this story is that um, it is a surprising piece of, of good news. And, and I've been thinking a, a bit lately about the fact that um, certainly most of the, the news that we see in the media is is negative. And, and Steven Pinker has a, has a great explanation of this, which is that we're just cognitively biased to pay attention to bad things. Bad things tend to happen really, really quickly. Um, they tend to really put scary, striking images in our minds, whereas good things happen very, very slowly, very incrementally, right? You never see a journalist reporting from a country saying, right, I'm, here I am in this country and there's there's no war going on and child mortality is slowly decreasing. Um, instead, bad things tend to happen in a big, bold way. And, and what was cool about this story is that it was a it was a big, bold, good thing happening. Mm. And it, it, it kind of pulled us out of the, the pessimism that we might otherwise find ourselves mired in by the by the rest of the stories on the front pages. Victor, how, how did they survive? I mean, it was miraculous, but also very good planning. Well, when this story broke, I was actually in the process of uh, of booking an internal Mexican flight myself. <laughs> I had a particular interest in it. I don't know whether we can say there was anything especially uh, skillful about this. I, I agree with Jeffrey that occasionally you do get flights which uh, where the passengers survive. I mean, you remember the case of the uh, Argentine uh, uh, rugby team which uh, crashed in the Andes and survived, but everyone assumed that they were dead. Mm. Fortunately, they were able to get out. There's the so-called miracle on the Hudson where, in theory, I suppose they should have all died. That probably was uh, pilot skill. Mm. And maybe there was something of that here, but I, I, I really don't know enough about that.
Because I guess what's happening is that design is and and airport aircraft design is moving on all of the time. I mean, the emergency procedures seem to have worked exactly as planned. One investigator described it as a design-based accident that should be survivable. So is this the future? Will we see more potentially fatal accidents being avoided because it's moved on? I certainly hope so. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if the engineers are doing their jobs, that should be the result. I mean, the, the fact of the matter, and of course we all know this, is that flying is a, is a very safe mode of transport. It's far safer than driving out on the roads. Um, and the fact that it's, it looks like it's getting even safer, I think, should assuage um, those among us. And I think we all know some people who, who are still petrified of getting up in mm. the air. The fact that here we are in Mexico and all 103 people on board managed to survive, hopefully perhaps because all the safety procedures went well, um, should help us at least be a, a bit more calm when we get on that next internal uh, Mexican flight, as Victor will do soon, it sounds like. Well, you know what? One of our researchers here at Midori House used to be a flight attendant, and she looked at this story, and we talked about passenger, passenger preparedness uh, mm. playing a part. And she really, really stressed, and this is somebody who knows, that you should absolutely always watch the safety briefing. She says that many airlines now ask passengers to remove their headphones. And even if you've flown a million times, this is probably the thing that saves your life because you do know where the exit is. Well, I think it's extremely unlikely that the passengers <laughs> on this, knowing Mexicans as I do, I think it's extremely unlikely that they all suddenly, you know, paid attention for two minutes and dropped whatever else they were doing. So I think we can discount that one. Uh, but important to do, Jeffrey. <laughs> it's either Virgin Atlantic or British Airways. I forget which one, but they have celebrities on the video as you're watching it. And I find that's very effective. I think it's British Airways, right? It's British Airways. It is definitely yeah. British Airways because yeah. it's all famous British actors. And I find that that's actually quite effective. And every time I'm on a BUA flight now, I, I watch the video. <laughs> uh, finally, back to your flight. So Aeromexico has a good safety record. Would this make you more or less likely to fly on them? Uh, neither. I mean, my view is uh, is that, uh, I, as Jeffrey said, air travel is extremely safe. And I long ago decided to uh, uh, ignore um, the, the risk of death. Jeffrey? Yeah, uh, absolutely. More likely. Why not? Let's put put in a plug for the airline. I mean, this is definitely a, a good day for them. Definitely a, an evening to, to drink mezcal and celebrate. Well, and they've had their bad luck if it was going to, if, if that's how it works, then, then they've already done that bit, I think. Well, anyway, listen, uh, Victor, good luck with your flight. Uh, thank you both very much for coming on. That's the end of today's show. Jeffrey Howard and Victor Bulmer Thomas, uh, thanks for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto. Pacheca and Anna Siveka and our studio manager was David Stevens. There's more music next and at 1900 it's The Entrepreneurs and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 including a follow-up on what's been happening in Zimbabwe. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow that's 1800 London time. I'll be with you on The Globalist at 7am uh, tomorrow morning. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.